and welcome to the TID Water and Power Podcast. I'm your host, Constance Anderson. And on this month's episode, we're going to discuss the Don Pedro Project, which is celebrating 50 years of water and power. Officially dedicated on May 22nd, 1971, the Don Pedro Project, also known as New Don Pedro, was built primarily for water storage and irrigation to serve the region's agricultural needs. However, the project also provides flood control, drinking water, and recreational opportunities while generating carbon-free hydroelectric power. Don Pedro now holds more than 2 million acre-feet of water, and the hydroelectric plant generates 203 megawatts of clean energy for the Turlock and Modesto irrigation districts. In this episode, I sit down with Wes Monier, Tim Payne, and Chris Martin of TID, and Ryan Reese of the Don Pedro Recreation Agency to discuss the Don Pedro Project and the importance and value of the project to the district, as well as what it means to them personally. Before we get into the interviews, I want to share a bit about the Don Pedro 50th Anniversary Celebration. As part of the celebration, we are asking the community to share their memories of the Don Pedro Project. Maybe you remember the building of New Don Pedro. Or perhaps your family has spent generations fishing or camping at the reservoir. We would love to add these memories to the 50th anniversary celebration and encourage you to visit donpedro50th.org. That's donpedro50th.org to share your memories. Now let's get started with the interviews. I'm here with Wes Monier, Chief Hydrologist for Turlock Irrigation District. Wes, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's a privilege and an honor. Excellent. So you started with, at TID more than 30 years ago. Is that right? Yes. It seems like yesterday, <laughs> but I've been here for a little over three decades. Great. Well, tell us a little bit about your history with the district. So I've been very fortunate. I started out in the hydrology in uh, on the forecasting of the uh, flow and the operations of the reservoir. Uh, setting the minimum flow requirement, water rights. And then I gravitated into the rate making, electrical rate making, and then was fortunate enough to get into the risk management. And then uh, again, was further fortunate enough to get into the greenhouse gas issues, just as it was coming online here in California, um, starting with AB 32. So it was been a very interesting ride. I bet. It sounds like you've covered a number of different perspectives of the the entire district. I call it a Heinz 57. It's It's been very lucrative and very interesting. Definitely. Excellent. All right. So in your current role as chief hydrologist, uh, what are some of your main duties and how does your specific role affect the operation of Don Pedro? So my group uh, forecasts the runoff from the Tuolumne River watershed. And we have a number of tools that we look at data sources. And then once we have an understanding of the runoff, then we simulate San Francisco's operations to derive the inflow into Don Pedro because it's, it's, it's a portion of the natural flow and San Francisco's operations, which, which supply the water into Don Pedro. And then we know working with the irrigation operations, we know the releases from by TID and MID for irrigation purposes. And then we also calculate the minimum flow requirement. And then we put all that together and come out with a forecast of the releases out of total releases out of Don Pedro, 
as well as the uh, resulting storage and elevation. And then there's uh, water rights that are involved in all of that that we keep up with. That's a whole lot to it's keep a, under, under there's tab. There's a whole lot there, yeah. and it's real fascinating. Excellent. So how long have you worked then specifically within hydrology, approximately? I've been here for the, for the full, I've had my fingers in it for the full duration that I was here. In, in the other subjects that I mentioned, I also had the, had the uh, Don Pedro operations, the hydrologic operations underneath. Right. Okay. So in that time, you've seen a lot of change, a lot of advancement. Massive amount of change, yes. Uh, I have seen several evolutions. It's been real fun. Very interesting. Uh, let's talk about some of the new technology that's sort of changing how, how you do your job. We've got several tools. Uh, I call them tools. They're really subject areas. Uh, and I have been in the operations, of course, and we didn't have these tools and capability. So for me, it's very exciting. Uh, for example, the, our ASO program, this is our Airborne Snow Observatory program. That's what ASO, ASO stands for. And where they take an airplane and they're using um, radar to scan the surface of the watershed to derive the depth of snow so that they can calculate the water content, the amount of water that's up there that will run off. They scan the watershed before the snow season and they scan it during the snow season. And the difference between the two elevations uh, is the amount of water that's up there after they go through a calculation to calculate the density. That, so you have what I tell people is a picture, a three-dimensional picture of the watershed. To put that in perspective, we have 17 snow course measurements that we use on the Tuolumne River system. And each of these snow course measurements is the result of sticking a tube that's about two to three inches in diameter in the snow, sticking it all the way down then pulling it back up and weighing that tube for the snow that you capture in the tube. And so you can picture these 17 courses, snow courses um, with the diameter of a three inch tube that you're trying to infer the depth over 1500 square miles of watershed. So with the ASO program, we're able to scan the entire watershed and we literally touch every single meter square meter on the watershed. We know what's up there. Wow. So it is um, a difference a day and night in our operations. I mean, prior to that, um, you're in the, you're in June, in the lower snow course, the snow sensors, we have snow sensors up there where it's a snow pillow uh, that's typically filled with glycol. It doesn't freeze. And the snow pillows are measuring the depth or the weight of the snow, which you can translate into the amount of water that's above the snow pillow, and then you extrapolate that out. There's just a few of these stations, and, and they run out because they're to the mid-elevation. So what's at the upper elevations? And you really don't know. So this is a very... Um, just I, I can't say enough about the importance of this tool. We uh, uh, have brought online uh, the information and intelligence derived from Scripps Institute uh, on atmospheric rivers, if you will. So the ability to forecast um, these large storms and 
what these storms will produce. We just did not have this capability, um, say, 20 years ago. And it's just it just makes all the difference in the world in our operations. Wow, that's great. That uh, definitely sounds like it would be a, a huge benefit in, in trying to crunch the numbers is, that you guys it do. Is, uh, it is such a bene- such a large benefit that it's very hard to articulate the value of it. It's just um, if, if and as we go into uh, climate change and the change of the hydrology, it will be invaluable. Excellent. All right. So the Don Pedro Project is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Uh, but before we get into new Don Pedro, what we what we affectionately call new Don Pedro, um, we'll start with just a little background on old Don Pedro, which was constructed in 1923. Um, but that reservoir, that that dam, only held 289,000 acre feet. And what does new Don Pedro hold? New Don Pedro holds two million thirty thousand acre feet. Wow, so that's a pretty big so upgrade. There's a big big upgrade, big difference. Yes. All right. And then with that capacity, um, the project, the Don Pedro project was able to, is able to help the the district get through consecutive dry years like what we're experiencing now. Um, how did the 2012 to 2015 drought compare with what we're seeing now in 2019 through 21? So the drought that we're actually seeing, I just looked at this, the, 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 2000, 2000 in the water year, which is from October 1st uh, of the preceding year to September 30th of the existing year. The last two water years, including this one, um, we're 400,000 acre feet. We're going to see runoff that's 400,000 acre feet less than we did in the 2012 13. So the first two years of the 2012 through 15 drought were actually about 400,000 acre feet lower in in the two th- two, two water years ending 2020 and the water year this year 2021. So, um, and but for New Don Pedro, uh, our customers would be uh, under some more strain than they are now. So you you kind of tipped on this earlier, but the trends that we're seeing with regard to climate change is that the extremes are getting more extreme. The the dry years are getting drier, the wet years are getting wetter. Yes, yes. The dry years are getting drier and the dry periods are getting longer. The wet years are getting wetter and the wet periods are getting longer. So for example, the if you look at some tree ring data. The driest four years in the last 1,100 years prior to 2012 and then about 1991. Okay. Then starting in 2012, the 2012, 13, 14, 15 period, that became the new driest period and it beat the previous period ending in 91 by 19%. So if you think about it, We've had the two driest four-year periods in the last 1,100 years within the last 30 years. Wow. this is an indication of things to come. I'll say, my goodness. The wet years, 1983 was 
the um, wettest year on record prior to 2017. 1995, it's the second wettest year on record. And then 2017, now is the wettest. So you've had these three wet periods, three wet years, the three wettest years in the last 50 years of the project or the last 118 years of history. Wow. Yeah, that, well, we'll save climate change discussion for a whole <laughs> separate podcast, yes. but that's uh, that's some yes. pretty telling information. Yes. And New Don Pedro has been right there through the thick and thin of it. That's, that's the beauty of it for sure. So you were with the district in 97 when we had the, the 97 flood. Yes. Can you, can you walk us through the, the timeline of events that played out for Don Pedro that year? So it was very interesting. We went into December of 96. We had a series of wet storms. It was a very wet month, but they were very cold. Uh, Snowmelt elevation was down around 1,500 feet. Um, then, and the, the reservoir was running above 801.9. Uh, the, one of the problems we were running into was that if you get the releases up and you have to meet the minimum, meet the flood requirements and our flood requirement is in Modesto at the Ninth street bridge. We, the river cannot exceed 9,000 CFS dry Creek flows in to the Tuolumne River up above the gauge. And so we have to, to, in order to maintain the flows at 9,000 or lower, we'll have to drop the flows at LaGrange 23 hours in advance to pass the flows at Dry Creek. And it's 23 hours in advance because it, it takes It the takes water. 23 hours for the flows to, to go from LaGrange down to 9th Street in Modesto. So if we get the flows up to say the eight to 9,000 CFS level, and then a big rainstorm comes in and drops a lot of water on the dry Creek watershed, then we have to reduce the flows real fast. And there's all kinds of issues associated with that, which we don't want to do. So and then you've got to keep it down to make sure that you've passed all the flows. Cause you, you, you really, back then it was, we had a, we didn't have the feel that we have today. We didn't have the tools that we have today. So we were running above 801.9 because of these issues. And then we had the, the um, uh, 90, 97 event show up. And basically we were informed that we were going to get four inches of rain on Saturday and a Sunday, eight inches total. The difference, though, was this is at 9,000 foot snow melt total. As opposed to 1500. So instead of a snow event, now it's a rain event and it's warm. So it's melting snow up there on the watershed. So you have the rain that's coming down. You have the runoff that's coming from the snow melt. So there are all of this is, is compiling to how the elevation of the reservoir is rising. Correct. And so the reservoir started rising very fast. And we ended up seeing the daily average of the full natural flow, which is the total flow in the watershed if there were no reservoirs on the system. And that reached 121,000 CFS for the day. That's the average for the day. We saw, we calculated hourly flows on the order of about 250,000. And um, so the reservoir did uh, rise until it went over the spillway uh, about. I think about a 1.3 feet. And uh, we ended up uh, at the peak of that elevation. 
we were putting about 64,000 CFS into the Tuolumne River. Wow. And that was using both the emergency and the controlled spillways. Is that correct? Yes. So we were using water was flowing over the 300 foot long spillway. And then all three gates were open. And we also had the power plant uh, wide open. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of, a lot of water. A lot of water. Absolutely. So then we also, as you mentioned, uh, the wettest year on record, 2017, um, experienced those wet conditions. And how did 2017 differ from what you saw in 97? It differed. It ultimately, for, for the volume of water for the month, um, for say a 30-day rolling period, uh, because in 2017 we got into February. But but if you take the January, February period, we actually had more water in 2017. What we had in 2017 that we didn't have in 1997 was the ability to forecast the storms coming in and the impact of, of what those storms were going to do. Those are the tools that we had. So we had, we were looking, for example, at the information coming from Scripps Institute. They're able to quantify these the moisture in the atmospheric river and the associated, the resulting you know, rainfall. Then with our hydrologic models, we're able to take that rainfall and determine the actual flows that we're going to see in the Tuolumne River. With those tools, we were able to start making releases. Um, we started making releases when we were about 15 feet below 801.9, which, which is the start of the flood control space. So with that, we went to basically... Um, what we call channel capacity, which is the maximum flow down the Tuolumne River. And we held that maximum flow, taking into account the rainfall events and keeping keeping the, the flows at 9th Street, below 9,000 when it's raining. We held that until February. And we ended up, we did end up opening the center side gate. We opened it at uh, the initial opening was to 18,000 CFS. We were expecting to go to about 30,000, but because we have these real-time models and because we've got some, um, we're very fortunate to have uh, a primary, uh, an individual, I'm thinking of Dr. Crawford at HydroComp. Um, he's, from my perspective, uh, and that invented the science, and I'm kind of partial to that um, fact that I know him. Um, because we had this capability, we knew in advance that the runoff was going to slow down. So we immediately dropped the after we opened 18,000, we dropped it back down to 16,000. We held that for a week and didn't change it. And with uh, cooperating with the city and county of San Francisco and their operations, they had, they had stored some water to relieve some of the stress down on the lower Tuolumne. And then working with them, we ended up releasing that water through that week. So we ended up holding the river constant at LaGrange 
at the 16,000 CFS level. The flows in Modesto never re, never got to 16,000 because we were filling the channel. And so that was a pretty big success. And there was, relatively speaking, compared to 1997, minimal damage. Wow, that's great. That that says a lot for how far that new technology and that more... I can't say enough. Yes, it just... Um, it was very exciting to see all this come together. It's uh, it it took a lot of effort to get there, and it was kind of like okay, it paid off. It it uh, it works absolutely. But just out of curiosity, do you remember what the the maximum elevation of the reservoir was that year? Eight twenty nine point seven six. Eight twenty nine point seven six. So we were. Point uh, two four feet from the top. <laughs> That's pretty close. And that, um, that if you think about that, you're moving a reservoir with 12,000 acres surface area and the mass of the water. You're operating the machinery to a very high tolerance. And so this is what this capability um, in the science and technology has given us. Absolutely. That's, that's impressive. That's, that's very impressive. All right. So the Don Pedro project is obviously very important to, to the community. Um, we, we reference it as the crown jewel. Um, what would you say Don Pedro means to the district and what does it mean to you? Um, Don, to me, for the district, Don Pedro, um, it's so important, it's hard to articulate, um, to come up with an analogy, but the one that I like to use is Don Pedro is the heart and soul of the Turlock Irrigation District. The canal systems and the transmission line are the arteries. And Don Pedro has been there, uh, b both old and new, um, Don Pedro, old Don Pedro, was very stable in a, in a somewhat stable environment and had managed to produce, um, to give uh, the customers or the constituencies uh, a stable environment and what I call a very lucrative environment, our, our electrical rates and our water rates under old Don Pedro um, were some of the lowest in California. New Don Pedro came online, and it came online in an environment that we had not seen. Um, going from 290,000 acre-feet to 2,030,000 acre-feet, there was this view uh, that we had a lot of water. But the 1977, 76-77 period, uh, where we had 367,000 acre-feet in 19, water year 77, we had never seen the hydrology that low. And so it, it did take off. Well, okay, we've got a lot more water, but we don't have that much water. And then within 10 years, we, we run into the 87 through 92 drought. Now in between we had the, uh, so I don't forget anything. I got to do this stuff in order. So we, we ran into the 76, 77 drought driest on record. Then we go into the 82-83 period. That became the wettest period. So 
relatively speaking, very quickly, we go from one extreme to the other. It had been, uh, you had to go, you'd have to go back to 1906, 1907 to have a comparable wet period. And then we moved from 82, 83 into the 87, 92 period, which is now the driest six years on record. And then we go back to another to the wet extreme under 1997. And so we oscillate back and forth, 2005 and six period, two back, for all intents and purposes, two back, back to back, 10% exceedance or wet years. The 2007, eight, nine period was a very dry period. 2011, very wet. And then we go into the 2012 through 15 period, driest four years in 1,000 years at least. And Don Pedro has managed, has enabled us to not just survive, but to grow and to benefit. And my viewer is a racehorse and she likes to run. And we're just, um, we're just now tipping the scales on the technology. We have a machine here that we're just now starting to understand because of the tools and the capability of what we can do with her. That's fantastic. And, and definitely inspires confidence in seeing that run of dry conditions to wet conditions to dry conditions and how Don Pedro has been able to really help our area. Don Pedro will be very instrumental in going and going, getting through the future. She she will, she'll get us there. Excellent. So with the 50th anniversary of the Don Pedro project, we are asking the community to participate by sharing their memories of, uh, of the project of Don Pedro with us. So I'd like to ask you, Wes, what is your favorite memory of Don Pedro? That would be for me, I think it's the 2005, six period. So the technology started coming online in that time period. And whereas historically the reservoir had, had reached levels on the 829, it was more luck where we set the operations in place. We were doing everything we could do. And we just happened to get to those elevations. We were thankful that we didn't have any more inflow come in or that the full natural flows weren't higher. Whereas the 2005 and six period, those two wet years, we now had the tools in place and it's like, can we target, can we maximize the storage? And we ended up getting the reservoir in those periods. Uh, We targeted 829.64, the difference being we have to have some space for the wave action for the water skiers and the boats up there. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> uh, I know that at the time I was asked, uh, you know, just how high are you going to take it, Wes? And there was some, I don't know about reluctance, but it was like, are you sure that, we, that this is where we want to go? You know, we had the capability to exercise all our rights and do what we needed to do. And so we were doing it. There was one little, um, one 
area that I thought, huh, there might be, there could be a problem. And that was the, we rely on a lot of telemetry inf information. And I was not 100% sure that the gauging information I was looking at and the actual information, you know, what, what if it was off? And I had nobody to, to um, tell me, guarantee it. So I took my family up there and measured the elevation by hand and then presented it at, at the board um, under the guise that we have covered all of the, we've uncovered all of the stones. We left no stone unturned. We looked at everything. We, we didn't take any chances. Um, and because my son uh, was in the picture, literally, I think it, <laughs> it was just interesting. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so he was part of the uh, official. He was part of the, survey, the surveying team. <laughs> wow! At how old? He was about seven, six, six, seven. All right. So, so after that, after the board uh, saw got, that you were putting your son to work, we got a new gauge. We got a new gauge. Perfect. <laughs> that's that's one way to 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 get your new equipment, I suppose. <laughs> oh, that's great. But Thank it all worked. I think that was it. All came together. Those. Uh, it came together from the snow. Okay, we can do it. And then in 2017, it was re it was it was refined enough that we implemented it. And I think that speaks for itself. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. So, Wes, you're somewhat of a legend here at TID, and one of your unique characteristics that uh, I think everyone who knows you enjoys is your unique. Turn a phrase. <laughs> do you have a do you have a, a saying a, a a Dallas Fort Worth saying that you can share with us from uh, that that's that's podcast appropriate? Um, it's been hiring a Georgia Pine working with and for Don Pedro. I think that's a perfect way to sum it up. Thanks, Wes, for being here. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Joining me now is Tim Payne, TID Chief Dam Safety Engineer. Tim, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. So let's start uh, talking a little bit about your role at the district and what your specific interaction and involvement with the Don Pedro project is. Sure. Um, yeah, my primary role with the district is uh, I'm responsible for the owner's dam safety program. Um, that basically is the umbrella for, for all of the dam safety uh, activities, um, revolved around our 28 dams and dikes, uh, of which Don Pedro is, is the largest dam. And so, uh, quite a bit involved with, with all of that. Um, and then in addition to dam safety, I also manage the Don Pedro life extension project. Um, we've got a, quite a team of engineers, both internal, uh, to TID and external consultants. Um, so, um, both the dam safety and the, the project. Great. And I, I definitely look forward to hearing more about the life extension project. Um, but first, so how long have you been with the district? Uh, coming up on eight, eight years um, since 2013. Very good. And you started as a civil engineer. Is that right? Correct. I started in the water resources uh, administration as a civil engineer. Um, and then, you know, from the get go, I was spending most of my time working on uh, the dam safety program, supporting our, our prior CDSE 
uh, damn safety engineer. Uh, and then, yeah, I just, so it was a natural fit. Um, when, when she retired, uh, um, I kind of stepped in and took over, uh, the lead role. Great. All right. So for those who aren't as familiar with the Don Pedro project, can you tell us a little bit about the components that make up the entirety of the, of the project? Sure. So, so the main, the main component would be the main dam. Um, it's, it's the ninth tallest dam in the United States, um, which is pretty neat because, you know, most, most of the taller dams in the U S are, are owned and operated by, by federal and state governments. So we're one of a, just a couple, um, you know, smaller utilities that, that manage, um, dams of this size. So that's, that's pretty, pretty neat. Um, aside from the dam, we do have several smaller, uh, dikes around the reservoir, um, including as well as a, a powerhouse, uh, hydroelectric power plant, um, a couple of different tunnels that convey the water around the dam and around the powerhouse. Uh, and then there's, uh, a, a pair of spillway structures. There's a controlled gated spillway and then a, uh, emergency auxiliary spillway. All right. Great. And then of course the, the reservoir that, uh, was created by the, the building of the dam. Right. Exactly. E- yep. Excellent. Um, so with regard to the dam specifically, uh, you mentioned that it's the ninth tallest. Can you t- tell us a little bit more about its makeup? Sure. Um, technically it's, it's known as a zoned rock fill dam, which basically means it's built out of dirt and rock. Um, the term zoned refers to the actual construction has several different layers within the dam for basically uh, managing and controlling seepage because it is a, a, a pervious material. That means water does flow through it. It's controlled in a very technical specific way uh, to make sure it's safe. Um, yeah, the, the design, that design, the zoned rock fill was selected based on available materials in the vicinity around um, the dam location, which is pretty typical. Um, and just an interesting fact on that, you know, they, they had to source very specific material for these different zones. And so they had to, you know, select materials from different areas. Um, they built for the construction of the dam, they built several hall roads, um, and they had massive, you know, earth moving equipment that just went 24 seven around the clock for several years, trucking in this material and placing it. So pretty, pretty big. Yeah, I would say so. Wow. That's, that is interesting. Um, and what about the, what about the, the cost and the financing of the dam? Is that something that the TID paid for in full? Yeah, good question. Um, so TID and MID Modesto irrigation, uh, jointly, um, funded the project. It cost a little over a hundred million dollars at the time, which, um, in today's dollars would be a screaming deal. Um, and also there was an arrangement with the city and County of San Francisco. They actually, uh, contributed part of the funds for, for the new dam as well. Very good. Okay. So as you mentioned earlier, as chief dam safety engineer, you're in charge of, of TID's, uh, really robust dam safety program. Uh, can you tell us more about that program? Yeah. So, so with my position specifically, I'm, you know, ultimately responsible for, uh, dam safety. Um, but of course, just like everything, it takes a a team of, of individuals to, to make that happen. So we've got engineers, we've got technicians, surveyors, there's construction crews. Um, in addition to, you know, the external state and, um, federal regulators that, that oversee the inspections as well. So there's a, um, a long list of, you know, routine and, and one-time tasks that we're just constantly doing, um, including, uh, you know, instrumentation measurements to make sure the dams are safe and nothing's moving or out of place. Um, 
there's visual monitoring, there's gate cycling. We have a lot of large gates and valves that, you know, have specific purposes that have to be, you know, <laughs> reliable. Um, so there's, there's a program. Um, we've got a lot of, a lot of tasks that we're, like I said, we're doing on a ongoing basis. Well, another thing I'll note is, you know, we, we tend to, because of the nature of, of dam safety and there's, there's never zero risk. There's always going to be some risk. Um, so really the, the goal is to manage the risk and the way we approach that is with a proactive, um, versus reactive method. So we're, we're constantly looking for, you know, what could go wrong, um, we actually uh, do some evaluations known as potential failure mode analyses that it's called a PFMA where we actually proactively brainstorm what could happen. Um, we look at the probability of something happening and the consequences of that happening. And then, you know, if something looks like there's some risk there, we'll look for mitigation and ways we can prevent it from happening. So that's another thing on, on a routine basis. We're looking to um, do those kinds of evaluations so that we can properly allocate resources to where we might see some hopefully low risk, but you know, sometimes there's still some risk there that we try to address before it becomes a problem. Sure. Absolutely. And we appreciate you doing that. Um, and I understand that TID was actually in, in kind of a partnership on a pilot program with FERC. Um, can you tell us first of all, what FERC is and, uh, about that partnership? Yeah, great question. So the the FERC, it's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, it's a, a federal organization, and they they oversee um, majority of the well, a lot of things, including dam safety on hydroelectric projects. And so, um, yeah, they they've they've uh, released some draft guidelines um, for uh, semi quantitative risk analysis. And so we were due for. Um, you know, a routine evaluation um, of risk at Don Pedro Dam. And so we opted to collaborate with with FERC and we just completed or we're wrapping up now um, uh, kind of a one of a kind first first of its kind um, SQRA process um, as a pilot. So FERC is is looking for, you know, participants to kind of gauge um, the effectiveness of the new guidelines. And so, uh, yeah, we partnered with them and so far things have gone really well. Great. That sounds like a, a great learning opportunity for both organizations. Absolutely. Yeah. Tremendous value. Great. Yep. Okay. Uh, so again, on the, on the subject of, of dam safety and kind of just the, the general upkeep of a, a project of this size and this magnitude. Um, you had mentioned at the beginning of the interview, the Don Pedro Life Extension Project. Um, let's get into that a little bit. I know that uh, this year, the Don Pedro Project is celebrating its 50th anniversary. That's a, a big deal. Um, so what does that mean in terms of um, what the what the project has provided so far and and what usefulness is, is left in the project? What uh, what repairs need to be made at this point. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the facility's 50 years old, very, very impressive. Um, big milestone. Like you said, um, it's, it's the facility has served us well. Um, the both districts very well for 50 years and, uh, it's been a, a great asset and it continues to be, um, although, you know, there it's, it's definitely aging and like, like any roads or bridges, you know, at some point you gotta, you gotta do some, uh, life extension. So, um, just to differentiate, first of all, the, the dam itself and the spillways are, uh, fortunately, you know, in very good condition, um, performing very well. Uh, on the other hand, the powerhouse itself has a lot of, you know, moving, rotating equipment, uh, mechanical and electrical components that are, 
uh, obsolete aging, um, you know, increasing, uh, maintenance issues and repairs. And so, uh, it's definitely due for, for some, uh, some attention. So, uh, back in 2010, we started the planning process, uh, of a, of a series of, um, refurbishments and replacements and repairs to the the plant overall. Um, so the first, first work, uh, actual onsite work kicked off in 2013. Um, you know, we, we prioritized the different projects again, based on risk, right? We wanted to go through this process prudently. Um, and so we, we began with some of the larger gates and valves, uh, related to the tunnels and conveyance systems. And so we began, um, doing a lot of work with that. And, and right now we're actually kind of in a transition phase where we're kind of going into the turbine generator phase. So it's a little bit bigger lift, um, for everyone. So it takes a little more time to, to engineer and, and, and plan for that work, but we're, we're just now starting to dive into that part. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, That sounds really exciting. A lot, like you said, a lot of moving parts. Um, and how long do you expect the entire life extension project to take? From a schedule standpoint, we're, we're a good halfway through it. Um, realistically, we're looking at about 2027 to return the last, uh, the last generator uh, online as, as things always go, you know, schedules usually aren't met perfectly, but, um, that's what we're targeting anyway. Right. And so throughout that process, then you'll be working on specific units at any one time. So then there are additional units as part of the facility that will carry the load at that point. Is that... Yeah. Um, another great question. Yeah. So we have, we have everything planned out sequentially. So we'll take, uh, there's four, uh, generating units at Don Pedro. So we'll take them offline one at a time. Uh, and hopefully the other three will continue to produce power in the meantime. Very good. All right. So thinking about the, the service that Don Pedro has provided to the area over the last 50 years, I think one one component often gets overlooked, and that's flood control. Typically one of those items that you don't think about unless you're in a situation where that becomes a, a necessity. And if I'm correct, you assume the role of chief dam safety engineer in 2017, which was the or is the wettest year on record. Um, what was that experience like? <laughs> That, that was a, a learning experience for sure. Um, that 2017 spillway operation was uh, pretty intense. Um, there was a lot of pressure on, on everybody. Um, you know, the, the rain was coming in, the lake was filling fast and, and, and we were all trying to prepare for, for any situation um, that could come up. You know, we don't, we don't operate the Don Pedro spillway very often. It's only operated twice in, in the 50 year life. So um, it's, it's not a common operation. Um, so, you know, again, the, the, the weather's, the weather's a big variable, right? You never, you never exactly know how that's going to, um, come through. Um, what, one, one thing I, I remember, and I'll never forget this, that, uh, Wes Monier, Monier, our chief hydrologist, um, he said in, in a meeting very early in the planning stages for spillway operation, he said, just don't get emotional. And I use that heavily <laughs> those few months, um, just cause there's, there's so many, things to think about, um, you know, washing out roads. And, and obviously when there's a potential for flooding downstream, um, everyone takes that seriously. But I, I do have to say, you know, it was, a, a again, another team lift TID responded, uh, very well and everyone, you know, took their job seriously. And I, I think everything, um, was very well executed. Um, one thing, uh, I remember, 
discussing many times was, you know, comparing back to that 97 flood. Um, 2017 was fairly different uh, in, in how the water, the inflow came into the reservoir. Um, we did have much greater forecasting technology this time around, um, better, you know, level measurement and what we call SCADA. Um, it's a tool, a digital tool we use to track um, lake level and other things. Um, so we were, we were able to do some things that we were not able to do last time and particularly um, worked with the Army Corps of Engineers, who's, you know, responsible for flood control statewide and, and nationwide. Um, we worked with them and, and uh, opened the spillway gates a little bit earlier than we may have otherwise and significantly reduced flooding downstream. So that was a big accomplishment. And again, just kudos to, you know, the whole team at TID for working together and making that happen. It sounds like the the partnerships, both internally and externally, uh, that had been built over the years really paid off in, in that situation. Yeah. And I, and I think that's really fostered a, a lot more from, you know, my opinion, but working for a smaller utility like this, um, you have a lot of those, uh, closer relationships where you, you understand each other a little bit more and you can collaborate better and, and, you know, really work well as a team. Yeah, absolutely. So also then right around that time, I think fewer people remember that Don Pedro opened their spillway gates uh, and more people remember the Oroville spillway incident. Um, how are those two incidents similar and, and how do they differ? Yeah. So Don Pedro and, and Oroville um, are surprisingly similar in, in both vintage and the configuration, the type of structures. Um, and yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy that just a couple of weeks before we operated our spillway, the Oroville spillway incident occurred um, that made big news all over. And, um, you know, we were, we were obviously watching that, um, trying to digest and learn from that. And, you know, we, we got all the best people around on our end and we, we did some inspections of course, um, and evaluated the risks and did some brainstorming with, with our regulators and our consultants and our team. Um, And we concluded that we did not have, uh, the same risks that the Oroville spillway had. And so, um, fortunately we were able to, um, you know, proceed and open the gates and operate that spillway fairly confidently. You know, again, there's, there's never zero risk, but, um, we were confident that we had, you know, a, a solid design and construction, um, and a few particular key differences between the Don Pedro and the Oroville spillways that fortunately we didn't have the the same chain of events. Very good. Well, and again, that a lot of that probably goes back to TID's proactive approach to dam safety and inspections and, um, you know, just making sure to the extent that you can, that everything is is ready to go at a moment's notice. Right. Yep. Right. Good documentation. Yes, absolutely. All right. So we've talked a lot about kind of the functionality of of the Don Pedro project. Um what would you say Don Pedro means to the district and what does it mean to you? You know, um, TID's core mission is to provide reliable and affordable water and power. And, um, Don Pedro is just directly integral to both of those things. You know, that's, that's the nexus between water and power for us. Um, we call it our crown jewel. Um, and that's a big part of why, you know, hydro power is carbon free um, it's very dispatchable energy at, at a moment's notice. You know, you can 
run up those units very quickly. Um, it's basically the world's best battery. You know, you've got that water supply, that energy source just sitting right there ready. Um, you know, our, our forefathers had tremendous vision and ambition. Um, and I have to say for me personally, I'm proud to just help, you know, maintain these assets that they had the vision to plan and design and construct. It is, it is pretty amazing looking back on it. Absolutely. So as part of the 50th anniversary of the Don Pedro Project, we are asking the community to uh, submit their memories of Don Pedro. Um, maybe they remember when new Don Pedro filled and, and overtopped uh, old Don Pedro. Maybe they've spent years camping at uh, you know some of the re- recreation facilities around the reservoir. Um, what is your favorite memory of Don Pedro? That is a tough question to answer. Um, you know, eight years of, of working at the facility, I've just got so many memories, um, some very challenging things, um, some exciting things. Um, I, I think if I had to just pick one, um, you know, I've, I've really, it's really meant a lot to me to be able to go inside, you know, the depths of, of these facilities that really not many people get to see. And there's some pretty, pretty interesting things down there. You know, we have, uh, one in particular, our diversion tunnel, um, you can't really see it from above ground, but there's a, a 30 foot diameter tunnel that's two thirds of a mile long. Um, and I've been fortunate to, to do inspections and, and work in there. Um, and it's just something else, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you have to crawl through some arduous paths to get down in there. It's dark, it's wet, it's cold. Um, you know, you can see your breath. It's just really, really cool to be able to kind of go explore and, you know, for that to be part of my job, that's, that's pretty exciting. Definitely a look that most people would not, would not get of any part of the Don Pedro project. That's, that's very cool. Excellent. All right. Well, Tim, we're kind of wrapping up our time here. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on with regard to, to Don Pedro that you uh, would like the, the average community member or customer to know? No, I think, I think we covered the bases pretty well, but, uh, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I wish I could share more about, about Don Pedro. Cause, uh, yeah, like I said, it's a very impressive facility and hopefully everyone, uh, if you haven't been there, go take a look, you know, go check it out. Um, and if you have go check it out again, it's, uh, yeah, it's just really, really an awesome asset that we have. All right. Well, we'll have to take you up on that opportunity and have you, have you back again to tell us more about Don Pedro at some point in the future. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Good. Thanks, Tim. Now joining me is Chris Martin, Hydroelectric Department Manager. So Chris, if you would, uh, please tell us a little bit about your history with the district. I grew up in Turlock, um, lived in the area since I was probably about three years old. Um, Knew when I was in high school that uh, college wasn't really my deal. So I knew that I wanted to get a job with uh, TID was the the job that I wanted to go to. I knew that early on and uh, kept trying to apply and apply. Back then, you had to apply and apply and apply. So finally, finally got in. Excellent. And when you did get into the district, in what role did you start? I started as a groundsman, which is uh, working on the overhead line crews. That 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 job's been eliminated from TID um, and mine. My position was actually eliminated as well during that time. Uh, Got a layoff notice after being TID for three years, which is a little, little scary, but. Absolutely. But you're still here. I'm still here. I'm still here. I ended up going out to Almond Power Plant. They were just starting that power plant up. 
So I went out there, worked out there for about uh, seven years. And then uh, the whole time I, I had had my eye on Don Pedro. That That's kind of where I wanted to be. And uh, I went up to, I, I was able to go up to Don Pedro temporarily in 1999 to help out with a unit four work. And then from there, uh, the next year there was a job opening and I moved up there pretty much permanently. And what is your current role with the district? I'm the hydroelectric department manager at TID. I oversee 10 power plants, uh, 17 units. Uh, Dom Pedro, of course, is the biggest one. And then there's a bunch of smaller ones that run along along the canal systems for both uh, or TID, South San Joaquin, and Merced Irrigation District. Great. So tell us a little bit about what Don Pedro means to the district and its importance in the community. Don Pedro, it's integral to this valley. The, the way that, you know, you look at all the agriculture and that, that all comes from, from the water being able to, to be supplied. Plus you have the, the, the electricity that we deliver from Don Pedro. Um, as, as far as for the district itself, I mean, we, our motto is TID, water and power, right? Another way of saying hydroelectric. <laughs> to me, that that's what the basis of it. So that, that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. Great. Uh, so how much power exactly is produced out of Don Pedro Powerhouse? So we have three units that are 55 megawatts and one that's 38 for a total of 203 megawatts. Uh, the, the three bigger units were original. They were put in, of course, May 22nd, 1971 is the dedication day. Um, and then unit number four was added in 1989. Uh, and it's a smaller one than, than the other ones. Great. And now there are a couple unique features to some of these units, right? What, what is it about unit two that's unique? Unit two is uh, the dedicated black start unit for the district. What does that mean? That means that when the power goes out for everyone, there's no, we don't have an inner tie. We can't get power from anywhere. Don Pedro unit two can start up and start supplying that power to the rest of the district. And we would then be running off of unit number two at Don Pedro. Wow, that's impressive. So that that critical infrastructure would still be supported, even if we have no other means of getting power into the area. Correct. We would go islanded and then we would start um, powering it back up. Wow, that's awesome. So of the 203 megawatts that, that Don Pedro produces, 139 of that is for TID. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, great. And roughly, that's about enough to power 37,000 homes. That yeah, sound about right? That sounds about right. That's that's pretty impressive. So let's talk a little bit about the substation that's right there at the the Don Pedro powerhouse. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? So we run uh the substation is 69 kV um that runs both to Turlock Irrigation District and Modesto Irrigation District. 
you kind of hinted about that earlier about how much power comes to TID. Well, that other portion goes to MID. So they, they get um, uh, their portion, we get ours. Un one of the really unique things about that switch art is we do have both systems coming into it. And there are times where we will isolate one system and kind of tie the whole power plant onto to the TID system, or we isolate TID and we put all the power onto the MID unit system. Interesting. All right. And then talking a little bit about the water release capacity of each of the units. What can you tell us about that? They, they have uh, each unit. The, the big units can release 1,500 CFS, and CFS is always been told it's the size of a basketball. That's how much water comes through there. But they, they each release 1,500, um, and then unit four is 1,000. Um, and then we also have other means through the hollow jet and the bypass tunnel that we can, we can bypass that water. And so speaking of those two, let's let's talk a little bit more about each of those. Um, the hollow jet. Can you tell us about the the capacity of the hollow jet and when we use it and when was it last used? Up to 2800 CFS we can release through the hollow jet. It, it is uh, extremely impressive when you see that going. It's like a big fire hose shooting down the river 200 yards. You know, it, it's amazing. Um uh, we use that for if we're trying to release more during a flood season or or other times when the units can't handle the water demand, we will then move over. Our first step would be to the hollow jet and start regulating with that hollow jet. Excellent. And uh, when was it used last? Do you recall? We test it every year. So uh, every year we go full open, full closed, um, just to make sure it's working. But I think the last time we actually used it for water releases was in 2017. And then you mentioned the bypass tunnel. How is the bypass tunnel used? The bypass tunnel was the original uh, bypass to the power plant when they built it. So they put in a called a coffer dam it's like a little mini dam in in on one end and then another one on the other and they d drilled it, this tunnel all the way around the power plant area then they pumped that water out and then then they built the power plant on dry land so once the power plant was in back in they could now go back and do work on the diversion tunnel or, or the bypass tunnel that that particular unit Things got like five names. So, <laughs> uh, so the diversion tunnel or the bypass tunnel has uh, three sets of gates in there that bypass water. They each can release about twenty five hundred CFS per per gate, and then they have a because there's so much force at the bottom of the lake. So this is at the very bottom of the lake. This isn't uh, the other the other tunnel. The power tunnel comes out about halfway up. This one comes out at the very bottom of the, the, the riverbed. And uh, that it has three tubes that go through there that kind of reduce the pressure on, on the gates because you have so much pressure and when, velocity when you open those up. We've been in there 
in the last 10 years, probably three times to do some work. We had to do some valve change outs, that kind of stuff. And yeah, it is, it's very arduous to get in there. You got to climb up a ladder, climb down a ladder, crawl through the tubes that I was telling you about, and then you drop into another big tunnel and then hike up about another half mile into the, into the, actually into the reservoir. And when, when you get to the very end, we block that water off with a gate that sits on top. So you get to the very end and you can look up and it's weird looking up and seeing water coming through and knowing that you are on the bottom of Don Pedro. You're underneath all the water. So that's pretty amazing. That that would be a pretty unique and very cool experience <laughs> for sure. A, a, a viewpoint most people don't ever get or even yeah, know exists. Uh, yeah. Great. Okay. So the Don Pedro project also played an important role in keeping the lights on for many customers during the heat waves that we experienced last August. Uh, what did operations look like then? And how important was Don Pedro in, in those types of extreme heat and peak power events? So Don, Don Pedro, during that time, we were doing, we wanted to make sure it would kept going. So we were doing double our rounds, making sure that there were no, not going to be any issues. We had to, we did have um, some maintenance planned for one of the units. We postponed that for a week or two, just because we, we wanted to make sure we kept all the power, power rolling, which, you know, in a, in a heat wave situation, um, hydro's perfect. You, you have the, the need for water from the farmers and you have the need for air conditioning by the residential and commercial customers. So the more water we run, the more power we get. And during a heat wave, um, hydroelectric is, it's a perfect fit. That's probably also a good time to mention that hydroelectric power is also clean carbon free energy. Um, and that's going to go a long way in, in helping TID meet our, our portfolio requirements of a 100% carbon-free mandate by 2045. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Plus, we have some of the small hydros that help with that renewable energy credits as well that I mentioned earlier. Great. So during this heat wave that we experienced, was, was Don Pedro running at full capacity? Yeah, we were uh, our full load during that time. Um, we were able to meet... All of our customers' needs during that time. Awesome, we're very fortunate uh, in that way that that our our we we're able to keep the lights on for our customers without uh, really much inconvenience to them at all. So exactly, we're we're appreciative of that. Which you know, it, I think sometimes the community at large maybe doesn't appreciate the. How, how people at TID feel responsible for their power, you know, and their water. We see people outside everywhere. And they're, my friends are asking me, how, how come the water, you know, how come we're doing this? I lost my power last night, you know, and we take that serious. I do. I take it seriously. I don't want my friends doing that. So that's a, you know, personally, I, I, I want to make sure that we're, we're better. Absolutely. No, you're, you're, you're right. There is definitely a, a personal responsibility there. Yeah. So an operating a hydroelectric plant likely involves coordinating with a lot of different departments at, at the district at TID. 
Um, what do normal operations look like and how, what sort of departments do you work with? Well, hopefully normal operations, we don't have anything breaking now, right? <laughs> but uh, we, um, normal operations for us is uh, we do rounds, we do um, minor maintenance, um, but we don't, uh, we don't do the operations from up at Don Pedro. Uh, it is operated, operated remotely through our power control center. Um, and, you know, our, we're in contact with Power Control Center constantly. Um, we're, we're calling them almost daily, talking what, what, the, what the units look like. Um, if there's any issues, can they move this one? Um, and then we work with our, our scheduling department, Bill Baca and his group. Um, and, you know, during flood season, we, we can communications with West Monier and, and that group. And now as we get ready to, for the upgrade, we're, ta we're talking more and more with the engineering group as far as uh, Tim Payne and his, and his group. So. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the upgrade. So the Don Pedro is, is going through a bit of a life extension project right now is what, what it's called, I believe. Yep. Um, what, what's happening with that? That's a, uh, so. Basically, uh, everything that uh, isn't embedded in concrete uh, is, is going to be removed and we're going to get new. Wow. So, that's a big overhaul. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, it's like taking a house and it, taking it down to the foundation and then building everything back up. So it, it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah, definitely. And, and can you tell us a little bit about um, how this project involves the various components? Is it, is it all parts of the Don Pedro project that are, are, are being renovated? Um, like I said, almost everything that's, that isn't embedded in concrete. Uh, we, we've already done, I talked about the bypass tunnel. We've already done those gates. We have uh, two isolation gates on the uh, power tunnel that feeds our units. Um, those two gates have been isolated or, uh, refurbished. And then, um, we're, we do maintenance and, uh, um, inspections on our spillway to make sure we, we keep that operating. Great. And then throughout that, is there, is there any concern with not being able to provide power through the units that are, are currently having work done. So the, we will have an outage. We've been having an outage in October through November, um, a full plant outage, meaning that we isolate the lake and then we take the water out of there and we're doing a, a coating project, which is amazing. Um, so it's a, so the power tunnel is a 16 foot, six inch, uh, steel tunnel. And then it goes up and it meets to a 18 foot concrete tunnel that runs out to the lake. And in between there, there's a, uh, a gate called the fixed wheel gate. It's got big old wheels on it and it's 165 tons. So it's huge. Um, it, uh, so we isolate the lake and then we drain that and then they're going in there and painting that. So they have to sandblast it and then recoat it. It's a huge project 
um, you know, safety wise, we, we, it, we're on all on high alert during the, those, those, uh, outages. So that's how we're going to do. That's how we've done the last two. Um, now when we get ready to run the, do the units, we'll do one at a time. So we'll still have power coming through the other units. And so we'll go, you know, we'll do the first one and then, then that one will be uprated and then the the rest, the next one and so on. Wow. It's, it's really fascinating how much control you have over this massive <laughs> facility, right? That you can isolate the the different units in different ways and get in to do the the repairs or the testing that you need to do. And, and nobody's the wiser. You, you still continue to, to produce power and, and produce water for irrigation. And yeah, there, there's a lot of planning that goes behind that. A lot of time. What if, what if this happened? What if that happened? You know, cause like I said, we, we want to make sure that we're supplying the power. We want to make sure that the water's getting there to the customers. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we've covered a lot today. A lot about uh, Don Pedro, the, the powerhouse specifically that uh, I'm guessing people didn't know prior to listening to the podcast. Um, but is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet that you, that you want to make sure people know about Don Pedro? Uh, it, for me, I think, and a lot of the other guys that have been around Don Pedro, it's like your childhood home. You know, you, you, you grew up there, you, you, you know, it, 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 it's, it's comforting to be there. Um, you know, I, I think of my, my buddy's grandfather, Charlie Arnold, who worked on old Don Pedro and then moved over to new Don Pedro. And he, he worked on, on both of them. And then, uh, you know, Frank Anderson, who worked up at Don Pedro for 30 years, Myron McCoy worked up there for 30 years, I, you know. I'm long in the tooth. So I get, I'm, I'm at 20 years, you know, but they, it's one of those places that is uh, very unique. Um, and it, it grows on you, especially growing up in the Valley, knowing what that means to our community. Absolutely. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And I would, I would say at 20 years, you're, you're well on your way to building your own legacy at Don Pedro. <laughs> that's, that's pretty impressive. So you kind of touched on this a little bit already, but what, what does Don Pedro mean to the district and what does it mean to you? Uh, to, to the district, I, I, I think we touched on it a little bit, but the ability to, to pass water and, and electricity when, when the needs are high and then back off when it's low, it, it it it's a, an amazing fit between the needs of our valley and what that that asset is to TID and so to me it's i knew when i came to TID that i wanted to get up there eventually um so um and the reason was cuz i knew that we were water and power that's what we do that's fundamental to what what we do. And so I wanted to be part of that. That's awesome. So the Don Pedro project is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. And as part of that celebration, we are inviting members of the community to send us their memories of Don Pedro, uh, whether that's, you know, someone who might remember when 
they had the dedication for the new Don Pedro Dam. Um, or it might be a family who spent every summer on Don Pedro on the lake, on the reservoir. Um, so we're asking our interviewees today, what is your favorite memory of Don Pedro? Do I have to only have one? You, we've got time. Because <laughs> uh, I did live there for 12 years and all my kids grew up there. So, you know, family was a, a big part of it. But uh, if I had to pick one for my personal life, it, it would probably be when I was probably five or six years old. My dad took me up there fishing and we caught a bunch of fish and had a great time. And I still think... I, that was one of the greatest fishing trips I've had with him. And we've been on a lot. Um, Work-wise, um, this is probably not my favorite, but the most memorable would be um, we had a, you know, Don Pedro's 50 years old, so we it's old. Uh, we had a pipe break Ooh. Uh, down, at, down at the bottom of the plant. And uh, I was... I was working with another guy and, uh, I went down to, you know, we had a, an alarm. So I went down to check it out and I, and I looked to see what was going on and water was spraying everywhere. So it's, you know, I think a 200 PSI water flying out at, out of a eight inch, this is an eight inch pipe. And it was flying out of there. It was going everywhere, all over these pumps, all over all kinds of stuff. And it's weird how your mind goes really fast in times like that. And so I knew that we had, when I worked in the line department, we took water out of Don Pedro to go wash the overhead power lines when they were energized with 69,000 volts. So we would take that water out. Don't do this, by the way. <laughs> uh, but they would take that and we would test it and make sure it was pure enough. Um, and I, I knew that that water was pure enough that we could, that it wouldn't conduct. So the water had in the bottom was about eight inches deep by the time I got there. And so I had the guy, I said, I told him, Hey, um, I'm going to jump off here off this metal staircase into the water. If I go down, don't jump in after me. Oh my goodness. So I jump in, nothing happens. So I run over and there was a valve there. And so I start cranking on this valve, trying to stop the water from getting, um, from continuing to come in. Cause we didn't have any, at, at that point we had, we did have the fixed wheel gate closed, but there's a long ways between the two and we'd have a lot of water within the plant. And, uh, so I jumped in and I just kept turning the valve, turning the valve until we got the water stopped. And then, uh, then we had a mess to clean up because there was oil and water everywhere. But that is probably the most memorable moment at Don Pedro. I would say that definitely ranks pretty high. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, maybe not your favorite time there, but uh, yeah, that's something that would be hard to hard to erase from your mind. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm I'm glad we had you on the job to uh, to take care of it, because that that sounds like it could have been really ugly. Yeah. It could have been, it could have been Myron who was there. He was the supervisor at the time. Um, he, he, he just kept shaking our hand. You saved this place. You saved <laughs> this place. And you know, it, it was, it, you know, I don't know. It's that sense of responsibility. I think that we, we have as mem 
I do as far as a member of TID, that I want to make sure that everything's good for everybody else. Absolutely. Very good. Well, Chris, this has been extremely enlightening. Thank you so much for being with us today and, and joining us on the TID Water and Power podcast. Thank you. Before I introduce my next guest, Ryan Reese, Director of Don Pedro Recreation Agency, or DPRA, let me offer a little background to help connect the dots between the relationship between DPRA and the Don Pedro Project. While visitors to old Don Pedro did enjoy fishing in the reservoir that was built in 1923, it didn't offer any additional boat ramps or camping opportunities. In the 1960s, as TID, Modesto Irrigation District, and the city and county of San Francisco, who are partners on the Don Pedro Project, were in the process of obtaining the license to operate, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, who has authority over approving the license, wanted more of a recreation component to be included in the project and required the districts to construct or provide for the construction of recreational facilities for boating, swimming, and camping as a condition of their license. In April 1970, the three agencies hired a recreation director to oversee the construction and operation of the recreational facilities and in 1971, DPRA was formed. I'm here with Ryan Reese, Recreation Director of DPRA, or Don Pedro Recreation Agency. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, guys. All right. So as the manager of DPRA, uh, what does that role entail? Yeah, so I report to a border control. Uh, the border control consists of represent representatives of uh, the Turlock Irrigation District, Modesto Irrigation District, and the city and county of San Francisco. Um, our operating district is Turlock Irrigation District. So there's certain rules, regulations, policies uh, for the operation that we do fall under Turlock Irrigation District, but we are funded through the three agencies. My role is oversight. Um, we have a, a recreation staff of approximately 16 total full-time. And during the summers, we'll reach somewhere around 50, including our seasonals and we have marinas, we've got boat launches, we've got fish cleaning stations, and we oversee, operate, maintain all of it. Um, we do have a concession lease agreement uh, with a concessionaire to operate the two marinas. Down there, you can find boat rentals, food and beverage. They also oversee a, a full service restaurant. Uh, we have the swimming lagoon, um, all sorts of recreational activities. Awesome. Yep. Okay. So there are lots of uh, great recreation opportunities at, at DPRA, obviously. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the camping that happens out there? I know there are different kinds of camping, different opportunities in, in that area. Yeah. So we actually have three campgrounds at our facilities. We have the Blue Oaks, uh, Fleming Meadows, and Moxon Point. Um, roughly 600 designated campsites make up the, the three parks. Um, each park will have anywhere from walk-in tent camping all the way up to 30 amp full service. Uh, that includes your pump outs, your electric, your water. Um, there's also additional dispersed camping that can be found around the shorelines. Uh, we do have maps available. There are restrictions to some. Um, so you always want to check our website at donpedrolake.com for any dispersed camping restrictions. Uh, at each park, we do have boat launches uh, that are all accessible. And there's day use parking in there. Um, but every park does have that, that amenity available. Great. That's, uh, thanks for that information. I'm sure... That will be very popular as the uh, summer continues to heat up. So of all the, the components that make up the Don Pedro project as a whole, uh, the recreation arm is, is probably the most public facing. And from a guest perspective, 
um, was was largely impacted by the pandemic. Uh, how did that affect operations and what restrictions or requirements are still currently in place? Yeah, so at the start of COVID, um, obviously we experienced our own shutdowns. Um, it was a challenge because where most of the world was given a stay at home order, we had to have some kind of operations. We do still have the uh, the water we have to provide to the employee housing. Uh, we we had to keep the lights on, as they say. So we had to not allow for recreational boating or day use. Um, there was no camping available. Uh, right as things started to become more certain, uh, we were able to open day use and we weren't allowing camping right away. Uh, but right about June of 2020 was when camping was was allowed by the state and we ended up opening again back on July 1st of last year. So uh, it was a challenge and it was a struggle, but we, we got there. Um, everything was fun and exciting for that 4th of July weekend. Uh, but as of right now, we have minimal restrictions. Um, everything is open. Our campgrounds are reservation only. Uh, so within 48 hours, we do ask that people make those reservations. They can call or do it online. And uh, day use is wide open. Come launch a boat and go fishing today. Right. And I know that also during the the, the COVID shutdown, um, coincidentally, you guys were planning some renovations with the swimming lagoon. So that timing kind of worked out in your favor. Is that right? Right. So we did have to shut down the swimming lagoon last year uh, due to COVID. It actually allowed us to start a capital improvement project early. Uh, so we were we were able to open it again this year, which was exciting. So we did a new filtration system with a new tank and the water's looking awfully blue for something called a lagoon. So it's, it's pretty neat. <laughs> That's great. That yeah. sounds very inviting. All right. So uh, many folks are probably familiar with the uh, recreation opportunities uh, at Don Pedro Lake, but they might not realize all the work that goes into maintaining these operations year round. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about that? Right. Yeah. The common misconception is that there is an on season and an off season. Um, we do have summer operations and we do have a season where there isn't as many customers, but it's really the only time we actually get to maintain the campgrounds. Um, so during the summer months, our primary focus is going to be customer experience, customers in general, safety, health, all that stuff. Uh, in the off season, as people would refer to it as, we get a lot of our capital improvement projects done. Anything that broke that we worked on mitigation over the summer, we go try to really resolve it so that it doesn't happen again. So there, there's a lot of lot of things going on there. We we have different roles and and staff members come in during the summers. We do have seasonal staff, but we have about 16 full time staff members ranging from division manager down to uh, park maintenance workers and and rangers. Great. So on any given day as a visitor to to the area, uh, what employees am I likely to run into there? The first person you'll see is one of our seasonal employees at a kiosk. Um, in the off season, there'll be different hours, but that'll be, that would be a ranger in the off season. Inside the park, you'll see patrol um, from full-time rangers to seasonal rangers. If you see somebody working in a bathroom, uh, they're likely going to be one of our park maintenance workers working on some plumbing issues. A lot of times we have leaky faucets. Um, if you call and say that you have a hose bib that's leaking, one of our maintenance personnel will come down. Uh, you'll see our seasonal staff out there weed eating, getting things ready for fire season. Um, our administrative staff, if you call in, one of our full-time employees will be at the front desk. Um, we have division managers for escalation points. And then myself, from time to time, you'll see out in the field or uh, if you need to make a call, I'll, I'll sometimes answer the phone too. Excellent. And then I understand uh, some of your rangers have have pretty specific training. Is that right? Yes. So our rangers are actually first responder trained. Um, they also have basic wildland and we aren't peace officers, but we are the acting peace officers in, in the park. We do a lot of educational 
we do not go and detain people. We don't arrest people, but through compliance, we use some of our training to go and explain what the rules are and why the rules exist in the park. But if you were to call 911, we're going to be the first responder to help you in that situation. Wow. That's, that's impressive. And then you also have a, a, a partnership or a relationship with a concessionaire that helps to manage the marinas. Is that right? Right. Yeah. We, we work with Suntex marinas. Uh, they do have an operation at the Blue Oaks Repair Yard, the Fleming Meadows Marina, as well as Moxham Point Marina. They do anywhere from a fishing boat up to a houseboat for rentals. They have your, your fuel, your ice, your pump outs. They do um, food and beverage. So we have what's called the Pirate's Cove, which uh, formerly was the trading post. And they operate a full service restaurant out of there. And they also do uh, snack shack concessions off, off of our swimming lagoon. Great. And if I understand correctly, SunTech is, is working on making or has made maybe a number of renovations or improvements in the area. Yeah. So the focus right now is to work on some of the areas that they've heard from the customers as well as uh, listen to the customers and bring on new amenities. So one of the major projects they're just wrapping up was at their private houseboat Marina at Flame Meadows. They redid the deck completely. Uh, that consisted of taking the panels off of the marina, taking them off site, painting them and bringing them back on. So they're going to wrap that one up soon. They are completing obligation at the public marina at Flaming Meadows by replacing the sea dock. And then they're actually going to be adding a uh, finger for houseboats. They're going to bring approximately 30 houseboats over there. So oh, that'll, wow. be, that'll be kind of cool to see. Great. All right. So during the pandemic during the shutdown, as things were starting to open up, um, camping was really one of the only things people could do for a long time. Um, how would you say the the reservoir was important to guests during that time? It, it was very important. Um, with it being one of the few things you could do, it was nice to be able to provide that service to everybody. Um, one of the things that we focused on was staying consistent through our operations. So there wasn't shutdowns, reopenings just to shut back down again. So a lot of people were wondering what was taking us so long to reopen when we first did. And in a matter of weeks, we had to hire, we had to weed eat, we had to prepare the campgrounds at the time. We had no idea what was happening and we didn't think we were ever going to reopen. So when they dropped it on us on June 12th, that we could reopen, we said, well, we've got some stuff to do. Uh, although we've been maintaining, we had to get it ready. And the area and the people, the visitors that came through, they really appreciated the fact that we were able to get it ready and not rush into things. We didn't provide a snake hole for them to go camping, basically. Sure. So it was, it was exciting. It was challenging. And it was good to see everyone having fun once we did finally reopen. That's great. I, I would imagine it's a little bit like having a clean house or having a clean house that's ready to entertain guests. It's, it's a little bit different. <laughs> well, good. Well, I'm, I'm sure the, the community appreciated having that opportunity and, and being able to, to get outside and enjoy. So thanks for, for your team and all your hard work. As we've mentioned, the Don Pedro Project is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, which also means that DPRA is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. So congratulations on that. Uh, what, what events or what uh, do we have to look forward to with the anniversary? Just recently on uh, May 22nd, we did a 50th anniversary giveaway. It was a promo item. Um, we're looking at different options we can do through the summer, but right now our main focus is going to be for a firework show. At the time, we don't have a greenlit project, but we are hopeful that after Beyond the Blueprint is announced, we are going to be able to have a firework show on July 3rd. So 
fingers crossed. We're doing a lot of planning. We're hoping to get there. And I know that that is a fan favorite around here. So I, I wish you guys the best of luck and, and hope that that, uh, that comes to fruition. Now, once upon a time, there was a visitor center as part of, of DPRA. Um, but that was unfortunately lost to a fire in, in 2016. Um, can you tell us if, about any plans to, to rebuild? Yeah, right now we're still working with our designers and the insurance company, and we're very hopeful in the next couple of years we'll have something built. Uh, we're looking to make sure it's like kind of quality while also looking for a modern feel for, for our building. We have a lot of building code. Of, as you can imagine, 50 years ago, there was a lot of things that were okay that may not be okay today. Sure, absolutely. Now, you yourself are relatively new to DPRA. Um, how would you say that, that Don Pedro Reservoir and the, the activities that, that are provided there compare with other recreation areas that you're familiar with? We're right in line with some of those other facilities that are around us. We have Lake McClure and New Maloney's that are very close in proximity. Um, we do provide certain services that, that do allow us to have a greater footprint. Um, we have the 600 sites that are open year round with some monthly camping. Uh, these are things that are fairly standard, but our marina through our concession lease agreement requires them to be open year round. Um, our water levels are, are higher than anybody else's during the dry year. So it's still nice that our boat launches are available. Um, one of the questions we actually get today is, are your boat launches still available and ac accessible? And the answer is yes. Um, but yeah, then in terms of background, the, the other recreation areas I work for aren't like um, Don Pedro Recreation area, area. The the water levels fluctuate because it's meant for irrigation. So that's something that's that's pretty new to me that I'm still learning every day. That is a, a big component of our our water first facility for sure. What would you say the reservoir means to the guests that visit Lake Don Pedro? So the reservoir to the local area is recreation in their backyard. Although perceived as a tourist attraction destination for some, our surrounding area residents can be seen all, all year long fishing, boating, camping, and utilizing our swimming lagoon. For those that use the recreation area frequently, we even offer the annual passes so they can enter as many times during the year as they wish. Great. So as part of the 50th anniversary of the Don Pedro Project, we're asking all of our interviewees, what their favorite memory is of, of Don Pedro. And I know that as we, as we mentioned, you started in December of 2019, right? And then almost immediately afterwards, we were thrust into the midst of the pandemic. So I'm going to, I'm going to take a pass from you on this one, but I hope that you'll come back uh, maybe a year from now and share with us what your, what your new favorite memories are having had a little more time under your belt. How's that sound? deal. <laughs> Very good. All right, Ryan, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thank you for tuning in to the TID Water and Power Podcast. You can find TID on Facebook at facebook.com slash TurlockID, on Twitter and Instagram at TurlockID, or on LinkedIn as the Turlock Irrigation District. To share your memories and stories of Don Pedro, visit donpedro50th.org. I'm your host, Constance Anderson. We'll see you next time.